Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Patients with Uncontrolled Asthma on a Biologic, Clinical Consults, is provided by RMEI Medical Education, LLC, and the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, and is supported by an independent educational grant from Sanofi Genzyme and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Doctors Corrin and Wexler, uh, welcome. Uh, good to, uh, to be discussing these cases with you again. And to all our colleagues who submitted these difficult cases to review, we really appreciate it. Now, today's case is a 63-year-old male with allergic rhinitis, mixed eosinophilic neutrophilic asthma, and the patient has severe asthma. He's on prednisone 10 milligrams daily, teotropium, budesonide for motorol 164.5, and Montelicast. Mepolizumab was added and it helped, but he still had three flares a year and no change, no change in the chronic steroid use. So the steroid burden was substantial. An update that was obtained while the patient was on mepolizumab showed that the eosinophils didn't go to zero, but did significantly decrease. They went to under 100, but not to zero. So the question here is there's improvement, but the patient's biomarker and the pharmacodynamic biomarker of eosinophils wasn't completely obliterated. So given this case, uh, Dr. Corrin, how does mixed eosinophilic neutrophilic asthma differ from eosinophilic asthma from a clinical and treatment perspective? Ray, in order to answer that question, I think it would be useful to first define what we're talking about when we say eosinophilic or neutrophilic or mixed eosinophilic and neutrophilic asthma. Eosinophilic asthma, as we all know, we base upon a, a peripheral blood count looking for eosinophils with a cutoff of 150, generally indicating that eosinophilic asthma is present. Uh, when it comes to neutrophilic asthma, we can't really base this on the blood count. In other words, an increase in blood neutrophils does not indicate what's going on in the airway. And to make this distinction, we generally rely upon a sample of induced sputum, where generally speaking, we look for 60% of the cells um, on that slide should be neutrophils in order to make this categorization. And a mix of the two entities would suggest either a mix of eosinophils greater than 2 or 3% plus 60% neutrophils on the sputum slide, or that number of, of neutrophils present in sputum with an increase in blood eosinophils, as we've already discussed. So the question is, why would somebody have a mixed picture? Part of it may rely upon the fact that people can have other disease entities, other comorbid conditions that could potentially cause neutrophils to arise in the airway. Uh, things like gastroesophageal reflux, um, acute or recurrent bronchial infections might predispose and lead to this development, or chronic sinusitis. So these are some of the things we have to consider when approaching patients that have been diagnosed with this entity. Um, when we consider these other possible comorbid conditions and we're faced with a patient who doesn't have a complete response to a type 2 inhibitor, then we might want to consider some possible therapies directed um, at the neutrophilia itself. And there have been a number of different trials as well as uh, many anecdotes where patients with so-called neutrophilic or mixed eosinophilic neutrophilic asthma have been treated 
with macrolide antibiotics. There's probably more data to support this class of medications than any other. And this would include both azithromycin and clarithromycin, typically taken for a period of three to six months. And in many of these patients, there is a robust response to this therapy. Great points, uh, Jonathan. That's uh, really spot on. Um, so, Mike, uh, you know, what are some of the reasons that the patient may not respond to mepolizumab? Um, would you want to also comment at that point is, what would you do in this case to reduce the chronic uh, oral corticosteroid burden that the patient's experiencing? Yeah, so I, I think it's really important to evaluate in terms of response of whether or not the patient has other comorbidities that could still be going on in these kinds of patients. Could he have ongoing uh, uh, reflux disease? Could he have ongoing chronic rhinosinusitis? Uh, could there be uh, some elements of vocal cord dysfunction? Uh, what about uh, aspiration? Could that be an issue? So oftentimes we find these patients who've got severe disease, particularly patients who have a mixed uh, eosinophilic, neutrophilic phenotype, that they've got some other factor going on. Another issue is, is are they completely adherent to their therapies? And that's another important factor. Um, and, and so that would be the first thing that I would do. Now, uh, it is a little bit unusual for patients who um, are on uh, anti-IL-5 therapy to not have their eosinophil counts go significantly below 100. Um, and that might reflect the heterogeneity of response to these therapies and the pharmacodynamics and, and pharmacokinetics uh, in specific individuals. Um, and that's why in other disease entities, like in eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, we tend to give a higher dose, actually, of, of a drug like mepolizumab. In terms of what to do next, in terms of getting the patient's corticosteroids down, uh, I think it's uh, important to do it very slowly. And sometimes uh, what happens is, is um, uh, physicians and patients uh, either go too quickly or they don't go quickly enough uh, in certain circumstances. And they'll uh, attribute a failure uh, of tapering to uh, perhaps some mild ongoing symptoms. So I tend to go very slowly. So someone who's on 10 milligrams a day, I'd go down to nine milligrams a day as opposed to down to five milligrams a day as some, some others might do and go down very slowly in one, one to two milligram increments. And sometimes that achieves benefit. It, there might be other reasons for this patient's failure and it might relate to the underlying pathophysiology of the asthma. And in those circumstances, we need to wonder whether or not there could be some other mechanism that's at play. Jonathan mentioned uh, potentially that there could be ongoing infection that could be uh, ongoing and could uh, addition of a macrolide antibiotic be beneficial. I wholeheartedly endorse that approach uh, as well. So I, I think a combination of recognizing and looking for comorbidities, uh, trying to understand the pathophysiology, and getting a better sense of what the endotype is. And maybe for this person, that we don't have the right drugs available as of yet. And maybe we need some other newer therapies that are on the horizon or in development. Great points, uh, Mike. I think uh, you really uh, gave us uh, good insight in the case. You know, it's a little surprising to me. In this case, the patient's getting two World Cup drugs to wipe out eosinophils. I'm talking about oral steroids and an anti-IL-5. And despite that, this patient's eosinophils are not, are, are not zero. 
Um, isn't that surprising? And I really like the idea about adherence and whether there's challenges to adherence. Uh, do you want to care to comment on that, Mike? And then uh, Jonathan, your insight. Yeah, so uh, the production of eosinophils is variable in uh, different individuals, and there may be a variety of different mechanisms that result in eosinophilia, uh, whether it's uh, straight from the bone marrow or whether there are some, sometimes some T-cell clones that produce IL-5 ongoing. Um, and uh, and we, we don't have a good sense of why this might be in most individuals. Perhaps trying a different anti-IL-5 therapy, one that blocks the receptor, like benralizumab, may have been uh, more efficacious in that regard as well. Good, good point. Jonathan, any other comments? The only thing I would consider is whether or not it makes sense to go from one anti-eosinophilic drug to another. We know that with mepolizumab, on average, there's been about an 80% reduction in blood eosinophils, irrespective of wherever they start. And, and similar findings have been found with the other anti-IL-5 drug, rustlizumab. We know with benralizumab, which doesn't bind to IL-5 itself, but binds to the receptor, causing apoptosis of the eosinophil, that it's, it's very common to find an eosinophil count of zero um, following the institution of therapy. Um, at this point in time, there's not a lot of data suggesting that switching from an anti-IL-5 necessarily to going to an anti-IL-5 receptor drug will make a significant difference. Very good point. All good points. Um, so this is a challenging case, no doubt about it. Uh, just to reiterate, I think the comorbidities that were raised really need to be addressed. And the uh, patient that is unresponsive or not completely responsive to therapy, it's often because there's other mitigating circumstances. And certainly adherence needs to be considered. Uh, but I think we've hit all the major points here. Uh, the use of macrolides as uh, addressing a neutrophilic uh, pathogenesis uh, is, is important. Um, and, and I agree wholeheartedly with my colleagues in uh, what needs to be the next approach. The switching of this within the anti-IL-5 category or class is intriguing with different mechanisms of action. And again, we don't know about uh, pheno in this case and whether maybe another biologic could have impact. I want to thank you both for the insight on this difficult case, and hopefully our physician colleagues uh, and provider colleagues will have uh, gained insight. I want to thank you for joining us today. And don't forget, as you did with the pretest, to complete the post-test in this case. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by RMEI Medical Education, LLC, and the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, and is supported by an independent educational grant from Sanofi Genzyme and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash asthma consults. Thank you for listening.